Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today co-founded the intersectional feminist bookshop Silver Moon in 1984 with Sue Butterworth, which promoted work by women and provided a safe space with community activism and inclusivity at its core. Opening in Thatcher's Britain, the bookshop, operating in a male-dominated space and subject to threats of arson, played a vital role in the second-wave feminist movement in the UK. For 17 years, the pair pushed for greater visibility of women's writing and issues and frequently hosted visits from female authors, including Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou and Margaret Atwood. Now regarded as a feminist icon by the likes of Sandy Tostvig and Jacqueline Wilson, she's recorded the history of Silver Moon in her new book, A Bookshop of One's Own. Jane Tumley, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you very much. First of all, a huge congratulation and and huge gratitude to you from a generation of women like me who were really looking for a place to read about ourselves in the 80s and 90s. And, and you gave us that. And I just wonder if you're aware of how much you did for so many people. Well, I am and I'm not because... Like most things in my life, I've just kind of fallen into them. There never was a, a career plan. And I guess I was just tremendously lucky being made redundant by the dreadful Robert Maxwell and then sort of thinking, and what on earth am I going to do with my life now? <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, the only two things in my life, I'd just met Sue and we'd fallen in love and I'd just discovered feminism. And they came together and I thought, I just don't really want to work work in something I'm not happy about. And as I say in the book, we had this long walk along Llandidno Beach with our dog. And it was, what on earth are we going to do with our lives now? And we came up, it was bonkers, it was absolutely mad. We said, oh, well, we'll start a publishing company. Because Sue was an editor and I sort of did maths and sales and stuff like that. And then we realised that although we had some of the skills, we certainly didn't have the money. So we said, well, what about a bookshop? And it was an outrageous thing to say because basically we just de-skilled an entire profession. We thought that we as ex-publishers could walk in and become booksellers. Not true. But actually we were really lucky because we very early on added a third member to the team, Jane Anger, and she did have bookselling experience. So she sort of guided us through some of the trickier moments. And we then we decided if we couldn't be publishers, we'd kind of attack that gatekeeping, which was blocking the writers from the readers, because bookshops were saying, oh, we don't want to stock feminist books they don't sell. And readers were saying, we can't get feminist books because bookshops won't stock them. And something clearly needed to be unblocked. And we had the uh, ignorance and temerity to think we could do it. <laughs> Just to take you back a little bit before that, you are a vicar's daughter. I am indeed. And I wonder if that sort of influences your sense of, I don't know, community. And they say that uh, you can take the girl out of the vicarage, but you can't take the vicarage out of the girl. And that is very, very true. It, it certainly influences my sense of service. And it's one of my great regrets that my dad died. He died in 1980, so before all of this happened. And it was, it was very complicated. 
you know, growing up in a small village, knowing that you were different and knowing that this difference was not acceptable. And the Church of England is glacial in its acceptance of gay and lesbian people, as Sandy Toxvig has chatted to the Archbishop about without much success. So yes, it was it was a wonderful thing to be because he was a he was a good man, great sense of community. You know, he viewed the the small villages that we grew up in as a whole. If you went to church, that was fine. But if you didn't, that was fine as well. And he met those parishioners in the pub. So there was there was all of that sense of service to the community, coupled with the knowledge that the church didn't want me, and that's been very hard. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take you now to the late 70s and the early 80s when all this is going on because, of course, this is Thatcher's Britain and it's a very, very different place from the country that we see now. There were strikes. There was, well, I suppose not that I different. I was going to say not, not entirely that different. I think we're re-entering. It, Awful thought though that may be. Exactly. But just describe the landscape to us then. Plus things like, for instance, AIDS was beginning to to be something that we were aware of. We saw the the death of Terence Higgins. He was the first public person to die Mm. HIV positive. The poll tax, of course, happened during those times. I wonder if you just, for for readers who who don't remember that, just give us a a flavour of of that decade. It was a most peculiar time because, you know, here I am, I'm white. Well, I was middle-aged. I'm now a bit older, educated. I come from a secure family. I had oodles of advantages in life. And suddenly, by acknowledging the fact that I was a lesbian, I realised that I was an outcast. And that was bad enough. And then along comes Thatcher um, with, you know, there's no such thing as society and the speech she made about traditional families and sort of saying that we were pretended family relationships. I mean, what an awful thing to say. It's a bit like Suella Braverman now saying that gays and women should not bother about being discriminated against. I mean, how dare she? <laughs> so, yes, it was, it, was, it was... We suddenly found that you had been made a second-class citizen by your own government. And that was quite traumatic and very anger-making. But the best thing about it was that it provoked the most fabulous response. You know, you had people like Ian McKellen and supported by... Sue Johnson and Sheila Hancock and all sorts of people who said, no, 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 we're not going to have this. This is absolute nonsense. And it brought together the gay and lesbian community. And similarly, Thatcher, she might have been a woman who made it to the top. And you know, there was a moment you thought, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. And then she drew the ladder up behind her. Mm. She did nothing for women. In fact, she took away childcare, all sorts of things. And never promoted any female-friendly policies. And so the women's liberation movement kind of also took up arms against this. And, and there, was, there was a lot of activism going on. So on the one hand, the situation was vicious and unpleasant. But on the other hand, it brought forth strength and a sense of communities working together. We learned a lot from the American women's liberation movement and from the civil rights movement. And we thought, you know what, we're not having this, we're going to fight back. Mm. Now, of course, Charing Cross Road is mecca for bookstores, or at least it used to be. Helen Hamp's book, 84 Charing Cross Road, of course, is, is the book that talks about that. And you 
were given at a bookseller's rent a premises on Charing Cross Road. We were, and this was the most extraordinary thing because we, Sue and Jane and I, we'd spent two years looking for property and we couldn't get anywhere at all. And we were just sort of, you know, we'd think, yeah, well, this is a daft idea. But then that goes back to the Thatcher's Britain thing because Ken Livingstone was in charge at County Hall running the GLC and he had a very enlightened cultural policy they recognised that the Charing Cross Road then was a national and international tourist attraction. People came from all over the world simply to visit the bookshops. And, you know, thank you very much to Helen Hanf and Anne Bancroft for putting that one you know, even more on the map than it was before. Whereas Thatcher was all about letting the free market rip. Ken Livingston suggested this small discount and wanted to restore the... Charing Cross Road to being a book quarter. It was, it was, it was, not only was it a, an intelligent cultural idea, but it was an intelligent economic idea. And it was supported even by Stephen Norris, who was a Tory minister. But it didn't last, unfortunately. No. But in between, you had a fabulous time. I mean, not only were you bringing together all these wonderful books and wonderful people, you were also doing events. And this was really the beginning of bookshop events. It was. It was. When I look back, I mean, we did two events within a fortnight of opening, which was insane. But gosh, we were lucky because being in London and easy to get to. Publishers would just wheel their authors round. And we were... It's all about zeitgeist. You know, if you hit the moment, we hit the moment with the GLC renting us that property, despite the fact we had to spend a fortune doing it up. But we hit the moment of the introduction of some of the world-class, particularly black American writers who were unknown over here, shockingly unknown, I mean, when you look at Toni Morrison, for example, it was something like either nine or seven years between the publication of her first novel in America to her publication over here. Nobody was paying any attention. And when Virago bought Maya Angelou's I Know Where the Caged Bird Sings, none of the big publishing houses had picked it up. They paid £1,000 for the rights, and their first printing of 6,000 copies sold out in two weeks. Mm. But, you know, they had the vision to buy it. And, of course, and then they said, would you like to do a signing with Maya Angelou? And we said, we I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and she came to the shop and, oh, my goodness me. To have someone like Maya Angelou at her six foot three or whatever it was, her, her, her posture, her dancer's grace and her beautifully modulated, quite loud voice walking in and you thought, I'm in the presence of greatness here for for her activism, for her survival, for her writing. It was just absolutely fabulous. And then there is absolutely nothing nicer for a bookseller to see than a queue of people all the way down the road clutching their book, wanting to meet their author. And they've all bought it. <laughs> and they've all bought it. And, and Virago's got to go back and do a reprint. <laughs> of course, there, were, there was the other side of that too, which was hatred and attacks. Yes. It dismays me even today. I mean, there were, there, were, there were some big attacks like, you know, death threats and a knife attack and somebody wanking off on the carpet. And that was all pretty horrendous. And then, of course, there was the nail-bombing round at the Admiral Duncan, 
which, and I should mention it wasn't just homophobia, it was racism as well, because he set off a bomb in Brixton and in the East End too. But it was the sort of low-level constancy of it, the endless obscene phone calls or just men. And I have to say it nearly always was men behaving badly in the shop mm. or standing outside spitting at us or shouting abuse. It was, it was both very wearing, but also it, it made you understand that what you were doing was, was vital. So it was actually rather encouraging in a way. Now, there were a number of other feminist bookshops in London at mm. the time. What was the relationship between you all and between you and Virago, which at the time was the only feminist publisher? Uh, actually, they weren't the only feminist publisher. Only Women Press was the first feminist publisher. Then I can't remember exactly what order they came in, but there was Virago, the Women's Press, Sheba, Scarlet Press, Stromullion up in Scotland. So Virago's the one that's lasted and some of the others were quite small but very punchy and very radical. Mm. In terms of the other bookshops, I mean, Sister Wright was the pioneer. They were in North London. And as I say in the book, the very first purchase we made for Silver Moon was a map. Um, And we put little pink blobs on the map, little pink stickers, to show where all the other radical bookshops were, like Compendium in Camden, the Owl Bookshop in Kentish Town, a Sisterite, obviously, so that we were going to avoid their immediate patch. We didn't want to open up on their doorstep. It would have been rude, and it would have been commercially stupid. So we did that, and we didn't look in North London at all. And looking around the rest of London was, as I said before, a slightly depressing thing. And after about a year, when we'd been doing a lot of internal planning and conceptualising and all of that, we decided that we should have a meeting with Sisterite because we felt that it was the appropriate thing to do. So we wrote to them and set up a meeting. And I think we were both sides were pretty nervous. But they were very generous. They listened to what we had to say and they expressed their concerns and fears and we said, you know, we, we don't want to tread on your toes but we really do want to do this. And But I think fundamentally you got a city of six million people, a massive tourist trade, and we both felt that two feminist bookshops should be able to exist and in, indeed to prosper. And then about, it was just as our our grant application to the GRC was going through, we learnt that Virago were about to open a bookshop within half a mile of us, which I have to say didn't please us. <laughs> but there again, it wasn't so much that they were going to do that, but the fact that we'd discovered it by accident. Mm. Anyway, we very, very quickly had a meeting and, and they very, very quickly wanted to meet us. And we we talked it over and... I mean, we were we were afraid that because they had fantastic name recognition, they were much more competent than we were, that they'd sort of wipe us off the floor. But what happened in the meeting, we expressed concerns and we set ourselves to work together. And I'm really proud of what, what happened then because they, Virago had this fantastic publicist, Lenny Goodings, and so she, she set out to do a, a programme of The More the Merrier including Sisterite. So we got lots more publicity, as did Sisterite, because of Lenny. And then, of course, in about within a year, 
they gave us the one and only London signing with Maya Angelou. So we found a way to work it out. Yeah. I am interested in sorting and where to put the books. Uh-huh. Um, so the author, Christian Hogan, says, she says, I call this act of recontextualization the feminist shelf. So <laughs> tell, us, tell us about that. How, how do you decide what goes where? Well, I read that quotation. I thought, I have no idea what this, what this means. It was an ongoing conversation I mean, literally, we had this conversation for 17 years, every time it came up in a staff meeting. And how do you categorise books to make them politically coherent and just as important to make them understandable for your customers and for your staff? And I suppose the the most obvious example is in, in literature, where do you highlight the new exciting writing of black women writers, Asian women writers, lesbian writers, or do you just alphabetise it? So does Alice Walker sit next door to Virginia Woolf? Um, And we decided to go into the separating out, which we called highlighting, promoting, because I think from our point of view, it was easier for the staff and it was easier for customers who didn't know I remember Jackie Kay, the wonderful poet, disagreed with us because she she felt that all writers should be treated equally. And, and of course, there is absolutely an argument for that. Why shouldn't Alice Walker sit next to Virginia Woolf? But anyway, we, we made that choice and it sort of worked, but uh, we, we had to review it. Because, I mean, what do you do with, with lesbian writers? What is a lesbian book? Is it one with lesbian content? Is it one with a lesbian writer? Is it one with a lesbian writer who's in the closet and doesn't want to know? Do you highlight it so that your lesbian customers can find it? Or do you stick it in with all the other books so that your very shy lesbian customers don't have to go and stand in front of a lesbian section? I mean, it's it's difficult, a nightmare. Yeah. And I love the running joke the whole way through where various people question, including you, why George Eliot's included. Oh, gosh. That was, <laughs> Fantastic. That was such a thing. It was... When we started off, as I said earlier, having de-skilled an entire profession, when we were doing the original subscriptions, we had to do them from home because the shop was a building site. And I think it must have been the Penguin rep came round, and it had been a really long day. That's my only excuse. It had been a very long day. And Jane, Sue and I were sitting round the table, and he said, George Eliot. And I said, why are we buying books by men? <laughs> and there was this long pause as somebody decided who was going to tell me that George (laughs) Eliot was a woman. However, in my own defence, Sue had problems with a book called Hidden Hands because she thought it was about masturbation, (laughs) whereas, in fact, it was about women in the textile industry. (laughs) So I I think we we ended up fairly equal Um, on that one. Let's talk about the business model because you were very successful for many years. You made a healthy turnover, and this all worked. But you did end up having to close. We did. Now, I'm going to argue that it wasn't just us. When we closed in 2001, there were about 1,800 independent booksellers. About 10 years later, there were about 860. There are now just over 1,000. And I think fundamentally what happened were two things two things and a bit more. The netbook agreement 
which is it's it's a difficult thing to defend in a way, but they set prices, and so basically big bookshops couldn't discount, and so you were slightly protected. So once the netbook agreement went, the big booksellers started to discount, and that opened the gate for Amazon, who discount above all. Secondly, rents were going up unbelievably when we started off. Our rent was seven thousand pounds in nineteen eighty four, and by two thousand and one it was sixty five thousand pounds. I mean, you've got to sell an awful lot of books mm. to do that, and so it it was it was a moment where the industry was changing completely. I mean, at that point there were something like five chains: Otakers, Hammocks, Borders, all sorts. Now there's only one. There's only Waterstones. Mm. And independent book selling was decimated. So uh, we had we had very good times, and then we didn't. <laughs> You've written about it beautifully, and I mean, you really capture what it was like during that time in London, what the feminist scene was like, but more generally, what the political scene was like. I wonder how much the relationship between publishers and bookshops. Have changed now, and if there's a a mismatch between what market research says and how people actually engage with books on a shop floor, what do people want from their bookshop? That's a very interesting question, and to an extent, I'm not really equipped to answer it because I'm now out of the trade. What what fascinates me is that at the same time as there's been this massive halving of independent booksellers and lots of the chains, there's also been this huge rise in literary festivals. And I think that is what people want. They they want to read. During the pandemic, reading went up. Booksellers did quite well. You know, sitting at home in isolation, people turned to books, which was great. So reading is good. Reading is doing fine. Libraries are decimated due to council cuts. Um, we've now got the Children's Laureate requesting, demanding that all, all schools have a children's library, which they should, obviously. But I do think that books are holding their own in multiple forms. There's audio books now, which lots of people listen to. And literary festivals are... are so, so, so I think people want what they wanted with, with us, is they wanted connection, and they want to read, and they want to meet their writers. They want to be involved. They want to participate in it. So I think it's quite lively. Have you an heir? Is there is is there a follow-on from Silver Moon out there anywhere? I wish I could say yes. I don't know. Virago's still there, of course. This is probably due to my age. I'm not very social media savvy. I think there are things around on social media, like the stylist magazine and stuff like that. And also I, feminism has become much more mainstream. You don't need a separate shop to put your women's writing in. One of the things that concerns me is that if Silver Moon still existed, would there be enough books to fill it? Mm. And I'm not sure there would be. And I think, it, it's funny, it reminds me a bit about the suffrage movement, where the suffrage movement was going strong. And then along comes the First World War. So suffrage gets put on the back burner and then it has to revive itself in the second wave of feminism. I think there's something of that going on at the moment where feminism made a lot of achievements. Now climate change has taken possibly the 
premier concern, as indeed it should, because if you don't have a planet, what's the point? But I still maintain there is still so much to do. And then you look at something like the Me Too movement. Violence against women has not decreased. Abortion rights are going backwards in America. LGBTQ plus rights are still appalling in places like Saudi, Russia or 36 out of 53 Commonwealth countries. There's still an enormous amount to do, but in this country we've reached a place where there isn't quite the anger and the drive, but maybe the way this government's going there will be shortly. Jane, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating to talk to you. And as I said at the beginning, thank you for giving us Silver Moon. A Bookshop of One's Own is by Jane Chumley. It's published by Mudlark, an imprint of HarperCollins. And it's out now just ahead of International Women's Day, which is on the 8th of March. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to our producer, Tamsin Howard, and also to Mariella Bevan. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>